Hello, we're excited for you to join us for today's panel titled The Future of Innovation and Value in Surgery and Procedures. I'm Alan Condon with Becker's Healthcare, and I'm joined by four experts today who will be sharing their thoughts and insights on this topic. So before we begin, I'll take a moment to have each of our panelists introduce themselves and tell us a little bit more about their background. Uh, Dr. Darren Level, why don't you kick us off? Thank you, Alan. Uh, my name is Darren Level. I'm an associate professor of spinal surgery uh, in New York at uh, the Hospital for Special Surgery. All right. Thank, thanks for being here, Dr. Level. I appreciate it. And Dr. Scully, how about you? Uh, my name is Tom Scully, and I am a private practice neurosurgeon uh, who still owns my own practice and uh, with two other neurosurgeons and uh, am the medical director of our ASC currently and the past president of the Western Neurosurgical Society and happy to be here today. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, Dr. Scott Blumenthal, why don't you jump in next? Hi, Scott Blumenthal. Um, I'm an orthopedic spine surgeon at the Texas Back Institute. Uh, focus in my practice is I was a co-founder of the Center for Disc Replacement at TBI, an interest in disc replacement, obviously. All right, fantastic. And last but not least, Dr. Ronald Michael. Uh, I'm a neurosurgeon practicing uh, downtown Chicago and nearby uh, Northwest Indiana. I'm in private practice, still own my own practice, and uh, I'm solo, which is even more unusual. All right. Well, thank you so much uh, for having me here today. I really appreciate your time. Um, so, so to kick things off, uh, we're, we're going to talk about spine technology. And um, Dr. Michael, I'd love to kind of hear from you first on this one. Um, you know, when we're talking about spine technology, some, a term that I it perhaps overused is game changer. Um, but, but when you're looking ahead in spine at the landscape today, what technology do you see as the next true game changer in, in terms of spine surgery? We need to see where we've been. And I would say the last generation really geared itself towards refining what's currently state-of-the-art uh, in our armamentarium, namely fusions. But then when we think about it, fusion is a pretty primitive thing to do to the spine. So true game changers are going to be to try to restore the spine. And I think that'll probably come in two stages. The next stage will be prostheses to literally replace every component of the spine, not just the discs. Uh, and again, uh, disc replacement is a great technology, but I still think that's failing, namely not failing in so far as not doing well, but we're trying to rebuild the most complex joint in the body with, uh, or rather create the most complex joint in the body with off the shelf materials and technologies. So I think that's limited. So the next stage, we're going to need better technology, better understanding, et cetera, to restore the spine in terms of components. But the true game changer, and this is off into the future, where we can begin to maybe 3D print biological tissues to replace the spine. Uh, there's, there's a lot of work being done there with 3D printing of actual tissues, and I suspect that will eventually come to spine. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, 3D printing, really interesting to get your insights there. Dr. Bilbao, I'd love to go to you. I know as a disc replacement specialist, uh, what do you think, what do you think, uh, you know, is going to be the future of spine surgery, the, the biggest game change in technology? Well, you know, I, I, I agree with Dr. Michael, you have to look backwards to look forwards. And uh, in my 30 years plus in practice, game changers have been medical screws in the 80s, the cages in the 90s. And I do think that disc replacement has been a game changer, particularly in the cervical uh, in the 2000s. We started to do some trials on biologics in terms of disc regeneration 
And there was a lot of enthusiasm for that. And so far, I don't really think that's come to fruition. Um, I'm going to go another different path. I think the decision making has been taken out of our hands by the by the carriers, by the insurance companies. And I think if we can get true predictive analytic models that science agrees upon and that we can take control of the decision making part, then whatever technology comes out, we'll be able to use. Otherwise, we can great, do the greatest 3D printed things in the world. But if the insurance companies consider them experimental, which is the term they use for everything they don't want to pay for, we're not going to be able to use them. Got it, got it. I'd love to ask you a quick follow-up question there, on just on disc replacement before I move on to the other, the other surgeons here. Obviously, disc replacement has come quite a long way over the last decade or so. Do, do you think there will come a point where it will replace spinal fusion as a standard of care? Uh, I think in the cervical spine for straightforward herniated disc, not deformity, things like that, I think it is the standard of care in the cervical spine. Lumbar really hasn't, hasn't taken over. It's become kind of a niche um, center of excellence kind of thing. But cervical, I would argue that it is the standard of care. Got it, got it. Really interesting to hear from you there. Thank you so much. Uh, and, and Dr. Level, I'd um, love to bring you in on this in terms of, you know, big, biggest game change technology. Do you agree with, the, with Drs. Blumenthal and Michael, or what do you, how are you looking at the future spine surgery? I do to a certain extent in, in the sense of the comments on non-fusion technologies and the importance that those are going to play. But I think that the game changer is really the integration of technologies, software, surgical navigation, robotics into the operating room. And that's really allowing us to do these procedures much less invasively. It's allowing us to do non-fusion type techniques very, in a very targeted fashion without open surgery. So we can create a three-dimensional map in the operating room based on either preoperative intra or intraoperative imaging and co-localize that with an intraoperative scan such that we know where our instruments are in relation to the spinal anatomy of three-dimensional space. <clears throat> this is helpful for surgeon training, for education, and this has already been done in other aspects of surgery. Things like no-fly no zones or safe zones can be created with our surgical instruments. We can do targeted decompression procedures uh, and preserve the biomechanical structures uh, more precisely. Um, and so I, I think this is really the thing that's changing the way we do surgery. And that plays into how we position implants, how we position screws, rods, cages. Also, I think it's going to help how we position disc replacements. But uh, I, so I agree with the, um, the, the, the push towards non-fusion techniques because we all recognize the limitations of a conventional fusion. But I think it's really the integration of these interoperative navigation techniques that's really going to be the game changer. Got it, got it. And Dr. Scully, I'd love to hear from you on this as well. Anything you'd like to add um, to, the, to the list of technologies we've already discussed? Yeah, it's always great to go last because I get to follow such brilliant people who have great ideas and I, I can second everything that's been said, but I'm going to take a little different approach and turn. And we're coming out of the COVID pandemic. And one of the reasons we are is because of messenger RNA vaccines. And I think some of the technology of mRNA and what it can do from a protein perspective and in my world, living in Tucson with a heavily uh, retirement community and the amount of degenerative changes, and I think being able to perhaps use some of the technology now with the lipid nanoparticles injected into the disc and come up with means via which we can regenerate degenerated disc spaces and things along that line holds a significant future and to me is truly a game changer and different than all the things that we've been doing in the past. I'm, I'm a huge image-guided fan. I started doing it in brain surgery in 1998. 
and I incorporate it in many of my spine surgeries. So I, I certainly agree with that aspect and I love the cervical disc replacements as well. But I think from a game-changing standpoint, being able to reverse in some ways the degenerative aging process is, uh, is somewhat of a holy grail that, that perhaps mRNA may lead us to. Do you think that's uh, something that mightn't be, how far off do you think this could uh, is in the future? Is it, is it in the next decade or so, or perhaps a little bit longer? Well, I think it, that's a great question. I mean, I'm, I don't think any of us as panelists would have thought a year ago that we would have the vaccines at this stage. So the fact that we're able to do that, and, and if you study and research some of the mRNA technology and, and their ability to finally make it where it, it could be utilized in the human body without causing significant issues, it's, it's pretty fascinating how fast it's come along. So it's uh, for somebody with a, a higher IQ and a, probably a, a different uh, 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 pay grade than me to figure out, fortunately. Got it, got it. Well, it's certainly interesting to keep an eye on the clinical trials of what's going on in that space. Um, so one thing we didn't really touch on, uh, and kind of glad we didn't, was obviously robots. It's been the, the you know the talk of spine for for quite a, quite a few years. Um, in, in speaking to some surgeons who are who've been familiar with robots, one thing that I've that I've heard is that that robots in their current capacity in spine offer uh, more hype than real clinical advantage at the moment. Um, Dr. Dunbar, I'd love to go to you first for this question. Is that an assertion that you agree with, or how do you view robotic technology and spine uh, in its current capacity? Well, let me give you an example. We have 25 spine surgeons at Texas Back Institute, and we have a robot, and three of the 25 surgeons use it. So, you know, I think if you're talking about the entire space of the combination robotics, non-radiation image guidance, and now the emergence of some companies in virtual reality as well. You know, I think you put it all together and package it, um, then it may become more user-friendly. But at this, point, at this point, between the costs and the learning curve, um, there's not a lot of penetration of, of robot users, at least in our center. Got it, got it, interesting. And Dr. Scully, uh, I'd love to hear from you. What, what's your experience of robots today and how do you see them playing out in the field in, in the future? Yeah, I think um, from my perspective, our hospital that we practice at had a robot for a little over a year, and we have five different spine surgeons, three neurosurgeons and two orthopedic spine surgeons in practice, and only one of us used the robot. It was not me, it was one of my partners. And I, like I said, I, I've used image guidance for a while, and I have it down to such a, a science with my team in the room that it works efficiently for me. It works quickly and it's accurate from a pedicle screw perspective of using it. So I think the other thing is, as Dr. Blumenthal mentioned, is the cost is very significant for robots. And as we start moving our fusions to ASCs and outpatients, I think that it's cost prohibitive for many ASCs to be able to use robots, whereas some of the image guidance and some of the other methods are, are more amenable to being able to do that in an outpatient ASC setting. Got it, got it. Um, Dr. Lebel, do you, do you agree with uh, Dr. Scully and Blumenthal there with, with regards, you know, obviously robots being probably the two cost prohibitive at the moment, particularly for outpatient surgery centers? I, I really don't. And, you know, I think more than that, the market probably disagrees with that a little bit too. I mean, more and more we're seeing implant companies brand themselves as med tech companies. And I think they're understanding the growth in this area. The robots that we're using today are not our parents' generation robots. They're not what we had 20 years ago. Um, the previous generation required K-wires and getting K-wires and combining the surgical navigation with the robots, I think is really helping the adoption. 
At HSS, we now have more than 20 spine surgeons, and I'd say of those, six or seven are regular users of robotic technology. Just a few years ago, we had two FDA-approved robots. Now we have five or six, and so I think there's been an explosion in this area. Um, I think with respect to the cost, the costs are coming down, and I think that there are ways that hospitals, ASCs, and groups are working with industry to either finance or lease units or tie it into implant utilization that's making it more um, uh, more reasonable, and so they don't have that large capital outlay, which admittedly not everyone can afford. Uh, but in particular, in orthopedic surgery, we're seeing a lot of robotic utilization in the extremities. This has been done a lot in the hip and the knee, uh, and there's been a lot of growth and enthusiasm. And so the trainees that are coming through, the residents, fellows, are the ones that want to use it. So, you know, I, I think there are surgeons that will probably never adopt it, but it seems as though the younger generations are really uh, flocking towards it. So I think it's a big area of growth. Uh, and there's a lot of exciting improvements coming, you know, comments about mixed reality or overlaying the navigation on the surgical field. I mean, all these things are sort of blossoming technologies that are, are going to change the way we do surgery. And so I think we're sort of right on the precipice of that. Connor, got a really interesting to hear your insights there. Um, Dr. Michael, um, love to grab your insights here. Well, in terms of like I was saying initially, the current capacity, you know, I think everyone, everyone on this panel is, you know, an expert at placing pedicle screws. How, um, I'm wondering how much real advantage currently would a, would a robot offer you in your practice? Um, and how do you look at it really expanding? Where's the great need or advantage for robots to expand beyond the, the placement of pedicle screws, I guess? I really don't see a, a use case beyond pedicle screws. And I guess my opinion is somewhat intermediate between everyone that went before me. Uh, I do believe they're still not perfect. Uh, they are still kind of expensive, but uh, I am hopeful that the day will come that they become far more user-friendly, uh, far cheaper, and far uh, far more applicable. I, I trained at a time when uh, our fusions were done with Steffi plates. So, you know, we, we had to get four screws lined up perfectly or else the plate wasn't going to fit. So, um, I agree with Dr. Scully. We've, we've gotten our teams uh, ready, uh, you know, prepared now. We can, we're very efficient. Image guidance helps us and we're getting pretty good results. So with the state of the technology, I don't see uh, a role in my practice, but I'm hopeful for the next generation that these things will come to fruition. Got it. We're really interested to hear everyone's perspective there. Thank you so much for sharing. Um, and Dr. Michael, I'll, I'll love to stick with you for, for this next question. Uh, you know, we, we obviously talked about just there how um, robotics or robotic technology or similar technologies are probably cost prohibitive to ASCs. But when you, as more and more spine procedures move to the outpatient setting, um, what technologies are you really deeming essential for, for ASCs over the next five years or so? Uh, Dr. Michael, I'd love to go to you. Really, in terms of new things, again, what with the exception of just incremental refinements of what we already have. I think the next thing that might really be on the horizon might be some of these restorative technologies with stem cells, et cetera. So I'm cautiously optimistic that we'll develop the science and we'll begin to see real commercial products. Uh, the bone marrow concentrates, you know, I mean, it, it, it's a shotgun approach. We really don't understand the biology yet, but I'm hopeful that with greater understanding will we'll come better commercial products. 
Got it, right. So following the stem cells and biologic products there again, which we've touched on before. Um, Dr. Level, love to hear from you. Um, you know, must have technologies for the outpatient setting uh, as we continue to migrate these cases. What, what do you what do you what do you see? Yeah, thank you. Well, you know, I think having spinal surgery as an outpatient really is directly related to the invasiveness of the procedure. So, you know, my view is that to migrate more and more cases to the outpatient setting, they have to be done less invasively. And I think that ties into the interoperative imaging and some of the techniques we've been talking about. So, you know, ideally, more and more of those technologies are integrated into ASCs so they can be done less invasively. We can sort of minimize the collateral damage from big open surgery and get patients out of the ASC or hospital sooner. Got it, got it. Um, and Dr. Blumenthal, love to hear from you is also here. Yeah, and, and, and I agree, I'm really not gonna be able to add much, but I, I do wanna make a point that, that the fellow panelists do, but probably some of the people who are watching this don't the difference between ambulatory surgery and outpatient surgery. So, uh, so I would say what technology, or it's not really a technology, what should the ASCs be investing in? They should be investing in beds because a lot of these patients go home, they stay the night and they go home the next morning. With, so within 24 hours, it's still, still considered outpatient surgery. And if you wanna have more patients applicable to an ASC, there's gonna be more of them spending one night in the hospital. All right, super an interesting take. And Dr. Scully, how are you how are you looking at this in terms of next five years? What should ASCs be investing their money in? Yeah, I think that uh, Dr. Blumenthal's point is is very well taken, and it's um, it's an interesting thing. You know, Medicare changes the the definition of inpatient, outpatient, observation, et cetera. It seems like on a on a monthly basis, and so there's always going to be a percentage of my patients that I have to operate on in the hospital setting because of comorbidities or the nature of the procedure or the, uh, a variety of things related to that. But as it relates to outpatient versus ASC, I still do outpatient surgeries in my hospital, but then I do outpatient surgeries in my ASC. And from the ASC standpoint, I mean, we, we have many of the obvious things that we need, microscopes, et cetera, et cetera. We don't have any image guidance. We haven't done any pedicle screws in our current ASC. I see a move toward that, and I see a move toward definite uh, observational stays overnight. We have the capability for that. We just have not utilized that as the current moment, but I see the trend moving toward that being something in the future. Got it, got it. So it seems to be obviously these overnight stays, extra beds, and of course, uh, really, really nailing down those minimum invasive technologies and approaches to spine surgery. Uh, super interesting. So we've obviously got a bit of time to touch on technology there, but I wanted to make sure we kind of had some time to obviously talk about the payer landscape and also value in surgery. Um, Dr. Scully, I'd love to go to you first on this one. Um, you know, obviously the, the principle of value-based care looks looks here to stay, but, but what, what needs to really change in current value-based care models to be more attractive or more effective in spine care? Well, I think it's a, it's a very interesting question and it's it's a difficult question because it is the value that the insurance company puts upon my care that I provide. And I think when you, when you look at the idea of America, capitalism and supply and demand, um, it does not affect the medical world at all that we live in. We currently live in a very price fixed environment. And um, you know I have a high percentage of Medicare payers that I have to deal with and every insurance company out here related to Medicare and its reimbursement. We're in a current significant inflationary spiral. 
We have no ability to pass our cost line in any way, shape or form. Our wages go up for, for the employees we have to pay, our insurance goes up and every price and thing that we pay continues to go up. My wife is a store owner. She sells all sorts of things. She has gifts, this, that, and the other. I won't put a plug in for her store. Um, but you know, she is being told by every vendor, expect 20% increases due to shipping costs and other issues along that line. She can pass that cost on. We're kind of stuck with it. So the idea of value-based care is, uh, you know, I think bundling is very difficult in the spine world because there's so many different ways to do, to treat one individual entity. So in regards to spondylolisthesis and lumbar stenosis, there's a lot of different ways to approach that. So based on bundling techniques and value-based care, I, it's something that, I, that I've had a difficult time being able to try to organize my own thoughts around, which is probably obvious by the rambling that I'm doing on it, but I think there's a lot of work left to be done on it. Yeah, no, not at all. I mean, very cohesive. Um, I, I love your thoughts there. And obviously, bundle payments for spine are quite a different animal than bundle payments for, let's say, uh, you know, a joint replacement or, or something. But um, Dr. Blumenthal, are you seeing kind of similar challenges, similar experiences um, as Dr. Scully in terms of uh, particularly with bundle payments for spine surgery? <clears throat> yeah, I have, to, I have to echo those comments because um, really in terms of value-based, why isn't it working very well? is we've got so many, we've got an alphabet soup of fusion. We don't have consensus on treatment. So how can we bundle something if, if my fusion costs five times as much as Dr. Scully's fusion? It, it just can't be done. And from an, you know, and, and I'll, I'll stick up for industry too. You know, the, the, the charge is high quality, low cost. Well, quality comes with a cost and you can't develop the latest and greatest robot, for example, or expandable cage or 3D printed device without an attendant cost. And, then, uh, and, and I'll agree as well. Um, we're, not, we're not in a capitalistic world. I mean, if one of us gets, one of us needs a really good attorney, we want the $200 hour attorney or the $1,000 an hour attorney. It just doesn't work that way in medicine. Yeah, yeah. Doctor Level, love to bring you in here as well. Um, what are you seeing in New York? How, what has your experience been with like bundle payments or other value-based care programs? Yeah, so what needs to change in current models to really align with spine providers is that value cannot be a, a, a surrogate or a code word for cost containment, which I think all too often it is. You know, so just getting back to the definition of value, you know, we have to think of the outcomes per dollar spent. And so the way to align with providers is to make it patient-centric, that if we're motivated and incentivized to improve our outcomes, it may not be necessarily strict cost containment, but therefore you are improving value. And so um, I think, unfortunately, uh, there's been sort of a mental shortcut with a lot of payers to, to view value as cost containment. So we're going to have to develop improved methods to measure value. That may include tracking patient outcomes and costs over time. It may not make sense for a payer to limit uh, uh, procedures in the short term if it's only going to result in other procedures over time. It may be worthwhile for them to pay for more of a procedure up front if it's going to limit costs down the road. And so unfortunately, they don't have that sophisticated of a view with long-term uh, data on outcomes over time. But I think, 
as soon as that's developed and we have improved methods to measure value, it's going to be much easier to align on this topic. But as was mentioned by the other panelists, oftentimes it just comes down to cost containment. And that's where we feel as though we really have to advocate for our patients so that they, we do preserve the quality. Got it. Yeah, I mean, that, that makes sense. A super, super great point. Um, and Dr. Michael, um, any changes you would like to see implemented, implemented in Spine Revaluation Care that haven't already been mentioned by your other, your other colleagues on, on the line? Nothing to add, really. I think uh, the notion was well encapsulated by the three gentlemen, so nothing. Okay, I'll well, make sure I give you a, a second crack at the next question. Uh, so we, we a few minutes left here. I want to make sure uh, we have spent a little bit of time on this last question, which obviously we'll, we'll be touching on payers. Um, Dr. Label, I'd, I'd love to start with you on this last question. Um, in the New York market, I know uh, particularly, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, New York Blue Cross Blue Shield had a, a recent initiative where they are steering more surgeries away from hospital outpatient departments to uh, patient surgery centers. I'd uh, love to get your perspective on that. Is this something you think uh, more commercial payers will follow suit or what are payers um, changes or how do you see that the landscape shaping up in the future? Well, you know, first of all, I think it obviously makes sense to uncouple a lot of what we do from the inpatient environment. And the more we do that and the more we get spine care out of the inpatient setting, we are going to be able to improve value to lower cost. But you know, unfortunately, a lot of what's being done is really sort of a false savings in terms of having a perhaps unsophisticated payer making decisions in lieu of providers or patients as far as what they'll approve inpatient versus outpatient. Um, so, you know, I think that, you know, again, getting back to my answer a few minutes ago, there really needs to be better methods of measuring the value from an ASC or an outpatient center. If a procedure is forced to an ASC um, and the patient bounces back to an emergency department, the payer really hasn't saved any money on, on that uh, sort of episode of care. So I think that it's an important transition and I think it's gonna benefit patients, providers and payers, but it just has to be done uh, thoughtfully and, and in the right way. Got it, got it, for sure. Um, and Dr. Michael, love to, love to hear from you. What are you seeing in the Illinois market or what, what, um, what changes do you anticipate or would like, like to see uh, in the future? What I anticipate is not what I'd like to see. And what I anticipate is continuously uh, decreasing reimbursement, squeezing every last penny, essentially mirroring what everyone's been talking about this entire session. Uh, the insurers are not truly interested in quality care. They're interested in cheaper care. Uh, disguising it with calls for quality. So I'm not optimistic, uh, is, is the bottom line. Got it. Uh, Dr. Blionta, do you share uh, Dr. Michael's views? Are there no, no cause for optimism in the future in terms of payers, or how are you, how are you seeing the future of uh, landscape? Well, this is, this is the time for all of us to be really negative. And, and you know, the, the, it's kind of the perfect storm because we've played along with shifting care to ASCs. And why? Because we can get an economic advantage of being partial owners in ASCs, whereby the last uh, legislation took us out of the potential to own hospitals. So if the insurance companies force more things to ASCs that maybe we're not comfortable with, and you have a bad outcome, the insurance company doesn't get sued, your facility and you get sued. It's kind of the perfect storm. Um, what other challenge do I see from the from the carriers is not only them forcing maybe those gray zone patients to places where they you know shouldn't be, um, but 
the private carriers at least are starting to use these third-party reviewers. And essentially they're changing the protocols on the fly. They're telling us what we can and we can't do. Um, and essentially they're rationing care, but they're doing it as a one-off. And they change their third-party companies probably twice a year. So you can't really keep track of the protocols. So not being a conspiracy theorist, but maybe I am, and you know, maybe we all are now that, uh, you know, maybe it did leak from the Wuhan lab and it wasn't a, you know, a bad bat. Um, the perfect storm would be, it shifts all, all of us doing more cases to ASCs, decreases the cost of the carrier because they're the ones who benefit from them. And then what happens if all the carriers get together through their lobbies and then get to the Congress people and say, guess what docs, now we're gonna, we're gonna legislate that you can't own any healthcare facility, whether it's a hospital or an ASC, and then we have no recourse. That's really negative, I apologize, but you know, hey. No, negative, but that, that's how you feel. And it's certainly interesting to get your, your insight there. Um, uh, Dr. Scully, do you, do you kind of echo uh, Dr. Blumenthal's thoughts here or how are you looking at the power landscape and what's going on in, in Arizona? Yeah, unfortunately I do echo the same uh, sentiments and uh, just, it's fascinating to me for us, we've, we've been in negotiations with a couple of different payers at our ASC for well over 18 months. And they pay significantly less to do the procedure at our institution, at our ASC, than they do in the hospital. So it behooves them to contract with us. Instead, they continue to drag their feet endlessly as they do if we ever add a provider. And I use that word for Dr. Blumenthal there. <laughs> Appreciate it. <laughs> or a nurse practitioner or something to our office. You know, And it's an endless dragging of the feet from the insurance companies. As an example of something else, the authorization process to get things done. I had a two-level cervical fusion I was doing on a patient last week. It came down to an hour before surgery, and then I finally was able to talk to a medical director who told me I could do the C6-7 level, but not the C5-6 level. I talked to the patient. The patient said, I want you to do what you think is right. I knew they had a fragment directly underneath their ligament at C5-6. I added that level. I had my circulating nurse record my pulling the fragment out from the subligamentous area against the nerve root because I knew the patient had symptoms in both, both dermatomes, both areas that way. And it's really somewhat disturbing to me that somebody totally removed from even looking at the images, just simply looking at a report of an image, makes a decision about what I can do to my patient and then determines also what I'm allowed to use for my grafting there. And I think that uh, it, it is really something that has gone beyond the pale and will continue. And now we're facing the same situation starting in July with Medicare as it relates to getting authorizations for anterior cervical discectomies and fusions. So it's, it's kind of the, it's the, the horse is out of the barn and it is galloping uh, on Bob Baffert steroids all the way down to the finish line against surgeons in this situation. And I don't, I don't know how we stem the tide, turn this around and, and gain control of the situation because really we're the ones with our patients in the exam room trying to determine what is appropriate and correct for them. And that, that's still the, the sacred entity that exists that we need to maintain. Yeah, absolutely. So some really great points there. And unfortunately, uh, Dr. Blumenthal, it looks like kind of here also, before we wrap up, um, Dr. Scully alluded to the, the enhanced prior authorization, 
or authorization requirements coming in by CMS. Is this something that physicians need to get more involved in advocacy, push back against um, payers, or is this something that, you know, unfortunately, uh, physicians and surgeons like yourselves are going to have to, you know, have to deal with and overcome these enhanced prior authorization requirements that really, really kind of affects patient care at the end of the day? Well, you know, for, for better or for worse, unfortunately, we do have societies that we all pay dues to, whether it's the Neurosurgical Societies, North American Spine Society, that has advocacy groups, lobbyists, physicians in charge of it, um, but will always be outspent. Unfortunately. Dr. Level, Dr. Michael, I'm going to bring you in here. Any thoughts in, in terms of physician advocacy or uh, these increased prior authorization requirements? Um, look to get your two cents before we wrap up this, uh, this great panel. Thank you. I think those are all great points. I think it is a big issue. I think oftentimes those decisions are made and they're not based in evidence. I think we can all list a number of stories we've had, uh, like Dr. Scully's, where um, you know the insurers are trying to direct the procedure we do, and it may not make a lot of sense clinically whatsoever. Um, I agree with uh, what Scott said. You know, we can uh, do a much better job with societies with lobbying. You know, we're up against a uh, a bigger spend. Um, you know, one prospect is, you know, perhaps we can start to form databases of all the, the re uh, rejected cases and all the crazy things that insurers are forcing us to do and start to um, look at the data and push back on these things because we really need to advocate for what our, our patients need and what we know that is going to give them the best outcomes. Got it. Yeah, absolutely. Some great points. Um, Dr. Michael, anything to add before we wrap up here? I'd love to give you an opportunity to chime in as well. Really not much to add. Um... I'm pessimistic about advocacy being particularly effective as well. And for the reasons Dr. Blumenthal mentioned, namely, we'll be outspent. Uh, you know, you, you've got a trillion dollar industry, maybe multi-trillion, I don't know, uh, against just a bunch of uh, guys. Uh, and I just don't see it really going anywhere. They're going, to con they're going to win these battles. And it is what it is. Okay, well, unfortunately, we ended on a bit of a negative note there. Of course, we cover quite a bit in terms of spine technology, outpatient migration, uh, changes coming down the line in the, in, in the payer landscape. Uh, this has been a thoroughly enjoyable conversation. Thank you so much for, for everyone being here today. Dr. Blumenthal, Dr. Scully, Dr. Level, and Dr. Michael, uh, thank you so much for contributing. We really appreciate your insight, and we look forward to seeing you at future Becker's events. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you, Alan. Thank you.